You know, my goal is every day is Easter. <laughs> but every, at least every Sunday, right, we want to have a great celebration. I'm going to have you stand tonight, and we're just going to go to the Lord in prayer. Why don't we stand together and we'll pray. So, Father, we want to thank you. What a gracious God you are. And today is a continual, an annual at least, reminder of your amazing love and mercy and goodness and a demonstration of your power to exhibit grace into our lives, bring hope into our situations. Lord, there's nothing impossible or too difficult with you. And so I ask tonight, Lord, that you would open our hearts, Lord, even as you did on that uh, first Easter Sunday morning, as you spoke into people's lives, as you revealed yourself into the lives of people, Lord, may you speak our name. May you reveal yourself to us. May we leave here knowing that you know us by name. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. God bless you. You may be seated. Becky Greer actually shares a tragic story of the loss of her four children. I cannot even imagine losing uh, children. That's a very difficult, painful experience. And as she's trying to process all of the emotion, um, she remembers back to when her little nine-year-old daughter, Cammie, had come to her on a Mother's Day and presented to her a stargaze lily. And she had basically kept saying to her mother, you know, you're going to have to plant this outside because the plant, you know how a plant goes, eventually it was dying. And she said, you know, the floor said, Mom, if we plant it out in the backyard, that this plant will come back to life. And the mom, you know, just had a hard time believing that this plant would come back to life. But you know how many know what children are like? They can be very insistent. And Cammie wore Becky down. Finally, she went out there with her daughter, and they planted this lily. And, and eventually, of course, the blooms faded and died. And... And so when winter had come and the lily was now dead, also Cammie and her brothers were also gone from Becky. And she said, at that point, my world became totally dark. The following spring, when the lily sprouted and grew to produce 27 fragrant pink blooms, I became filled with an inexpressible joy. Joy came to me in the hour of darkness, how can that be? Without my children, I believed I would never feel joy or happiness again. But when I think of that beautiful child who came to me with an absolute childlike confidence that that flower would bloom again, you know, isn't it the Bible says that we have to come to God like children? We have to have that kind of childlike faith. You know, God can resurrect even the things we believe cannot be brought back to life. She said, I did not believe that that lily would survive the dark hours uh, of winter. I did not believe that I could survive the dark hours of my grief and suffering after losing my four children. And yet God, as God was working in the heart of that lily, in the darkness of the earth, so he was working on me in the darkness of my grief. I just didn't know it. Just because we don't always experience God's presence or we feel it does not mean that God is not there working in our situation. How many know that death has a way of stalking all of our lives? You know, and how do we find hope in the places of the greatest loss and sorrow and grief that we experience in our life? How do we keep going when we feel most like giving up, when life's darkest hours can only be understood from someone who has walked in that place. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You know, we can say trite things or pat answers, but really to experience loss and grief. You know what I think? It's so powerful when God reveals truth to us in, the story, in, in a story form. And the greatest story 
that God has ever communicated to us is the story I'm about to tell you tonight. You know, if you were here Good Friday and even as Sterling was singing about the cross, you know, that, that's not only part of the story. You know, if it ended there on Good Friday, if it ended Jesus dying on a cross, we wouldn't be here today. Do you realize that, that many thousands of people were executed on Roman crosses in the first century? The story would have ended. But what makes our story so exciting, what makes it so real is that Jesus not only died on the cross, but he rose again on the third day. That's what makes this story so powerful. And it means that we now serve not someone who's dead, but we serve someone who is risen and alive. And because of that, you and I have a hope that death itself will not be the final word in our lives, but you and I have a hope that transcends past death itself and that we can experience this amazing life that Jesus promised. Actually, the Sunday after crucifixion Friday is really the exclamation point in our Christian faith. Christ's victory over death means that he can promise life. You know, a lot of people talk about living in heaven or some spot beyond this world, but until you have a premise for that, you really have no hope. And so this, this evening, I want to talk about how we have this hope found in the story that we're going to look at tonight. You know, death, as I've already said, really there's kind of two responses to it. We have a lot of young people embracing death today. It's really weird. I mean, there was a, we're just enamored and there's a, a situation where we're just embracing death and you can see the dark side of things. And then we have the rest of the culture who are living in denial. We pretend death doesn't even exist. You know, we just shoot it off to one side. We don't want to talk about it. And you know what I'm noticing more and more now is more and more people are not going to funerals. Matter of fact, some people don't even want a funeral. A lot of people can't even hardly take attending funerals. Why? Because it's so close to home. It brings a, a very strong reminder that all of us are going to be faced with this issue in our own lives, that we're all facing a sense of mortality, that we will come to an end at some point. And a lot of people have a real struggle with that. So as I've already said, it's something we try to avoid, not think about, but it comes to us in many different ways. People that we love pass away, and we're painfully confronted by it. You know, the real issue in life that prepares us not only for life but also for death is that unless we're prepared to die, we're really never prepared to live. Until we settle that issue, it's hard to really live with significance and purpose and meaning. And I believe that the resurrection story brings that all into our lives. It gives us a confidence to face our own mortality. It cheers us with the assurance that death is not a permanent separation, even from those that have gone on before us. Our positive response to what Jesus achieved on our behalf gives us a source of hope and encouragement to continue the journey. To know that death is not the final end, as many people believe today. And I want to just say this, that the Christian hope is not built on some false premise, but it's built on historical reality. And that's what I want to focus our thoughts on. So today, tonight I want to just give us two compelling evidences that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And I believe that we can put our hats on these things. We can, we can build our life on these two historical realities. And that's what's exciting about it to me. And the first one is simply that there's an absent body from that tomb. Isn't that great? You know, as we, we look at this beautiful story, you know, as we turn to actually John's gospel, what we're going to realize is that the first 
actual um, followers of Jesus Christ did not anticipate what happened that first Easter Sunday, which I think lends a lot of credibility to the story. And we have to remember where they were at. These, these people had followed Jesus. They believed that he was their Messiah. And they had, you know, had great aspirations. They had almost a political aspiration that Rome would be overthrown, that the nation of Israel would be established, that they would live free from the oppression. And, and uh, just, just, you know, there was a sense, you know, we haven't maybe experienced in Canada, but to be suppressed by another group of people and put down. And maybe some of you have felt that way in your own life, you know, some, some, somewhat marginalized. And they felt that as a culture. And there was a great hope in God that one day all of this would, ha- would be changed. And so to see Jesus dying on the cross there on, on Friday was a very sobering, somber, uh, you know, hope-dashing, crushing experience for these people. I mean, they were devastated by what they were experiencing. They were experiencing deep grief. And uh, so they were coming that first Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, you know, the Passover had come between, you know, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and so they couldn't do anything on the Sabbath, but on that first day of the week, on Sunday, as they were coming, these women were now coming. They had not even finished, you know, it says, preparing his body for burial. They had begun the process. They had put some grave clothes on him and all the rest of it, but they were coming to finish the task. And as they were coming towards the tomb, What was foremost in their mind was simply, who's going to move the stone? That was what they were thinking. See, you know, know, in in that culture, they weren't burying people six feet down. They were actually usually putting people on the side of hillsides and caves and things like that, then roll stones over it. And so that's what they were concerned about. Who's going to move this stone, especially the wealthy people? By the way, Jesus was buried, we know from the scriptures, in a wealthy person's tomb. So there was a little bit more cost and elaboration involved. Yeah, the poor people were buried, but the rich people weren't. And so Jesus was placed in that tomb. And John picks up the story in John chapter 20 and verse 1. If you have your Bible, I'm going to have you turn there. We're going to look at a lot of scripture, but we're going to keep coming back to this chapter in John's gospel. John chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, I want to point out to us, we have, you know, four Gospels or four accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And in John's Gospel, he's giving us the story through the lens of Mary, primarily. And so Mary's coming to the tomb. Now, if you read Matthew's Gospel, there were a number of women traveling to the tomb. And notice what it says in the very next verse. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. I love this. By the way, that's uh, John. He's writing the story, and so he has to add, you know, I'm, I was Jesus' favorite, of course, you know, right? So he puts that into the gospel here. And he says, he went to, uh, she came running, and Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And then I want you to notice this expression, and we, notice that. So she wasn't alone. But John, the way he describes it, it sounds like she was alone, but she wasn't. He's just telling the story through her lens. He says, and we, she said, don't know where they've put him. So when they got there, there was no, 
no human remains. And so she was upset about that. And so now she's upset. She runs back to the disciples who were now, as we're going to read a little later on, they were up still in the upper room. They were staying there. The doors were locked. They were afraid. You know, if the Sanhedrin, the parliament of that time, had ruled against Jesus, possibly he was going to, they all were going to be killed as a result. And so they were fearful and they were hiding. And so they ran up to these disciples. And then we get the amazing story of Peter and John who now are concerned about what is occurring. We read in verse 3, So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. You know, I don't know about John. You know, he just keeps telling us stuff about himself. He was faster than Peter. That's what he's telling us. He outran Peter, right? And so he got to the tomb first. And it says he reached it first, and he bent over, and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go into that that encasement, that side of the hill, that tomb where Jesus was buried and were put in there. But then it says, then Simon Peter, who was, was behind him, arrived and he went straight into the tomb. That, you know, it says a little bit about Peter's personality. You know, he's kind of a leader type, very impulsive at times. And so Peter just rushes in, brushes by John, runs right inside and takes a hard look at what's going on, you know. And it says there, what he saw were strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. Now we got to think about this. And then it says here, the cloth was folded up by itself separate from the linen. So if you're a grave robber, you know, I just can't imagine this. You know, we're going to steal the body, but what are we going to do? We're going to take off the linen. We're going to fold it up really nicely. How many are already getting a picture that there's something weird going on here? You know, you think that if they're going to steal the body, they just take it, right? But here now they've taken the headpiece off and they've put it nicely folded. And the Bible goes on to say here, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's John, also went inside, and when he saw, the Bible says, he believed. What did he believe? He believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And the Bible goes on to tell us that's what happened because it said they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So John's belief is not based on you know, scripture and its understanding. John's belief is based on his knowledge of who Jesus is. Now, I want you to think about it. Could you imagine hanging around with Jesus like these 12 did for about three years? Could you imagine hanging every day with someone that was absolutely, well, the Bible said he was sinless. How many think that might be an amazing thing to hang with somebody that never sinned? And, you know, Jesus was always sensitive. He was really, you know, aware of where people are at. He was, he was absolutely amazing to be around. They could see his devotion to the Father. And they were experiencing some amazing stuff, weren't they not? I mean, I just read one here earlier. They saw people come back to life, especially Peter, John, and James saw this on a number of occasions where Jesus is actually commanding death to leave dead people. How many go, that would have been a little bit of an experience. How many go, that, that might be a little intense. You know, and then, you know, everywhere Jesus went, there were crowds and people were getting healed and people that were oppressed by the devil. Jesus had authority and demons were leaving. And, uh, you know, they were feeding multitudes with a small boy's lunch. I mean, how many know that's pretty good? And collecting leftovers that were actually more than what, you know, had been brought to Jesus. Now, this is beginning to do something to your mind. You know, these men literally 
believe that Jesus was the Messiah. As a matter of fact, they were, they were starting to wonder who he really was because you know they were in the boat at one point and the, the Bible says it was a huge storm, so much so that the fishermen thought, this is the end of us. They woke Jesus up. Jesus woke up and said, be still. And immediately the weather changed. You know, And then they said this, what, who is this man? Because you see, these are people that know their Bible and in And in Psalm 89, it says that God is the one who speaks to the storms. And so Jesus was revealing that he was unique. How many get that picture? And so you're hanging with this person. And so in their minds, you know, Jesus kept saying, and John keeps telling us in his gospel that Jesus is telling them, I'm God. And that's a big thing for a Jewish person because, you know, they believe in one God. And here's this human being walking around saying he's God. And that's creating a lot of difficulty. They were having a hard time meshing all of this in their mind. But John now is getting it, that God actually came to earth. It was an invasion. God becomes humanity. And, and John tells us in this gospel, and we beheld this glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So John is getting this incredible insight. And at this very moment, it's all of this element where Jesus had even told them ahead of time. He was telling them, listen, I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again on the third day. And yet, because they were so locked into their original understanding, it was hard for them to move to what Jesus was saying. But at this moment, John got it. Jesus was alive. Very powerful. Okay, so now Mary decides, you know what? These guys leave, it says, the next verse. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary had followed them. Now we get a picture that Mary is by herself. She had gone there earlier with the women, but now she had followed Peter and John back there. Now why would she do that? Because this was the last known place where Jesus was. I think for her, this was a contact point. This was a connection point. She followed them back. And she stood outside the tomb and she was crying. And as she wept, it says in verse 11, she bent over to look into the tomb. And then she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And then Mary, you know, can you get a sense of the grief that she's experiencing? How many are getting a feeling that she's really grieving? And, you know, she's got these angels talking to her, but she's not even focused in on the angels. Now, some of us, we go, wow, angels just showed up, right? But she's not thinking that way. She is so locked into her grief, into her sorrow, and these angels are speaking to her. He says, woman, you know, why are you weeping? And she said, "Um, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, why wouldn't Mary realize that it was Jesus? And I think the answer is simply, she was so locked into her grief. Do you know that it's hard for us to register something when we have a preconceived idea? Do you know that's true? I mean, in her mind, Jesus is dead, but Jesus is standing there, but she's not registering that that's Jesus. 
Now, maybe it was because of tears, you know, she, she just couldn't see clearly. That was probably a part of it. But I think she was so locked into the fact that he was gone, that he was dead, that she had seen him crucified. She had seen what had happened to him. She was so focused on that. She was so locked into the problem at hand. Don't we get that way in our life sometimes? We're so locked into the problem at hand that after a while we don't see anything. I've, I've noticed that when we can get so focused on our problems, eventually our vision narrows down to the problem. Eventually the problem is all there is in our life. And that's how we get as human beings. We get focused on the problem. And we can't see anything but that. And that's all she was focused in on. And folks, I want to just say something to us. That in the midst of our problems, Jesus is there. That in the midst of our sorrow, Jesus is there. That in that moment, Jesus is caring for us. He's trying to speak into our lives, but sometimes we can't hear his voice because we're so locked in to what's happening in our lives. That's exactly where Mary was at. It's interesting here that uh, Leon Morris uh, points out the statement. In general, it is true that the early Christians did not believe in the resurrection of Christ because they could not find his dead body. They believed in him. Why? Because they saw a living Christ. That's what turned the way they thought around. How many begin to understand something? If it was just the fact that the body was gone, they would have never come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was alive. But something greater was about to happen. But there was one exception. We've already talked about it. John, who believed in his resurrection before he saw it. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that Matthew fills us in the day after the crucifixion, the Sabbath leaders came to, uh, to um, Pilate because they understood that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Because they had remembered what he had said. They came here, Matthew says it this way, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. And they said, sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Now, I've kind of painted a picture where these guys were at. In their minds, Jesus was somebody who was false. They could not register that God could come in the flesh. And that's why they had him crucified. They felt he was a blasphemer. They felt like, you know, how can this man say he's God? How could he say he's the Messiah? They just were not connecting with it. They, their picture of the Messiah was so unlike what was happening. They were missing a lot of understanding from the Old Testament where Isaiah talked about a suffering servant, talking about having to die for a sins. None of that really was registering in their minds. So they gave the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. I'm so thankful for this happening, that this actually occurred. Why? Because now, you know, 2,000 years later, people say, well, you know what? They put Jesus in the tomb and then somebody stole the body. That's the issue. But you see... These people were so concerned about what Jesus had said. They said to Pilate, they said, listen, we need to secure this body. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. And so Pilate said, okay, go ahead, take a guard. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Well, that's great. Now, how many know that, you know, if you're a guard in Roman times, it's a big deal if you fall asleep on guard duty. Now, what happens if people fall asleep on guard duty today? What would occur? Won't they be disciplined? 
Yeah, you know what? In the military, if you fall asleep on guard duty, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get severe discipline. Now, if you fall asleep in a time of conflict, if you're on the battle lines and you fall asleep, you could probably be court-martialed because people's lives are depending on you. But in the Roman world, there was, there was really only one response to people who fell asleep on guard duty. You know what that was? Death. This was such a severe thing. So, you know, these guys were so used to doing guard duty, they did not fall asleep. I can guarantee you. If you knew that you were going to die if you fell asleep, you'd stay awake. You know, you'd be pinching your cheeks, holding your eyelids open. You'd be doing whatever it took. I'm telling you, you'd be staying awake. And these guys were awake. As a matter of fact, Matthew goes on to tell us, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Now we're getting a different vantage point of the story. And it says there was a violent earthquake. Now, if you were sleeping, how many know an earthquake might, might, might wake you up? Now, these guys were standing there, and there was a violent earthquake, it said. For the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, remember what I said, the great concern of the women was what? Who's going to remove the stone? But they didn't have to worry about it. Because we see here that the angel did it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white like snow. Now, I've read the Bible quite a bit, and I've noticed that when angels show up, people get a little nervous. You know, how many know that we get a little nervous around the supernatural? Now, we can really handle the natural things of life, but it's very frightening when the supernatural breaks into the natural. How many know that's true? It's scary. We're afraid. And we know we read in the Bible and angels show up. What's the first thing they say to people? Don't be afraid. Why do you have to tell people not to be afraid? Because they are. Very good answer. Very obvious. They were afraid. Okay? So, it says here, the guards were so afraid of him. Now, these are Roman soldiers, guys. These are the, this is the fighting, most elite army in the world. They were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. So, now what are they going to do? It says, uh, while they were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that happened. Why did they go to the Jewish chief priest to tell what had happened? Because if they would have went to their Roman commander and said, oh, by the way, we were on guard. Oh, by the way, this angel showed up. This supernatural being showed up and took the body. What would, the, what would their commander say? Right, execute these guys. You know, they're in collusion. They all fell asleep. That's what he would have thought. They would have been in big time trouble. So they went to the only place where they felt they could get some sort of assistance. They went to the place that was probably people who would be a little bit more, you know, concerned because really they were posted there because the chief priests had asked the Romans to post a guard there. So they went to them and said, hey, listen, we had a problem. This is what happened. There was an earthquake. An angel showed up. You know, they were telling those guys and they said, listen, stop, you guys. You know, we'll take care of it. How many know there's always been backroom deals? We'll take care of it. We'll pay you guys. All you need to say is somebody stole the body. Yeah, but if we do that, we'll be killed. No, we'll make sure you're not dead. Okay. So they made this little conspiracy to, you know, to bring this story around. Now, if the antagonistic crowd of unbelieving leaders knew that Jesus had foretold that he was going to rise from the dead, don't you think that these disciples had been told as well. And now, for John, it registers. He's alive. But you know, beyond Easter Sunday, do you know that Jesus actually appeared to his disciples 
many different ways. You know, a lot of people try to argue against the story of the resurrection. You know, I've read things like, well, Jesus never fully died. He kind of swooned. I've read where people said it wasn't really Jesus that died, but he was substituted by somebody else. You know, I've read where, you know, some people have said, well, it was mass illusion and people, you know, kind of a, you know, hysteric, mass hysteria. And, uh, you know, these guys, you know, just listen, stop already. Listen to how the gospel writers frame it. Jesus, actually, it says here in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Yes, he appeared to them in Jerusalem, but he also appeared to them 90 miles away in Galilee. Jesus, you know, showed him his wounds. Jesus actually had breakfast with them by the Sea of Galilee. The Bible says here he gave many convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. You might have thought, yes, maybe I thought I saw Jesus, but when it happens over and over again after a while you know you start to get more convinced this is actually Jesus he's showing up he's doing this stuff well let me go to the second evidence that speaks of the resurrection and it's simply this not only was there an absent body from the tomb but Christ many appearances to his followers now Jesus first of all he appears to Mary in chapter 20 verse 10 it said then the disciples went back to their homes but Mary stood outside the tomb crying We've already talked about that. Um, Now Mary makes another assumption. And the assumption is simply this. That we often interpret the events in our lives incorrectly. How many know that's true? Notice what it says here in verse 15. It says, when Jesus, you know, know, when, when when she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus, he said to her, woman, Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Now, this is fascinating to me because Jesus is talking, but she's not registering. How many, you catch that, right? And then he says, thinking he was the gardener. So now Mary puts her own interpretation on what's going on. She goes, oh, this guy's got to be the gardener. I mean, he's the only, why would anybody else be here? And she says to the gardener, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'm going to go get him. Now, that tells you where Mary's head is at. Now, you say, how can she go through all like this? How many here have ever had a moment of shock in your life? Anybody ever experienced shock? How many have experienced shock? Raise your hand. Have you ever, okay. I'm gonna tell you a story. I had an experience of shock in my life. I was driving down a highway, freeway, and I hit a deer at 70 miles an hour on a freeway. I saw them jumping. There was three of them, and I was trying to slow down, on a turn, and I thought I was going to miss him, but at the last minute, one of them jumped up on my vehicle. That's a scary experience. I hit it. The deer comes sliding all the way up the hood, slid right across, wrapped himself around the windshield. That's a scary moment. I can't see anything but deer. And I thought the deer is going to come through the windshield. That's what I was thinking. Okay, Finally, I get the car stopped. The deer kind of slides back down. He drops down. My radiator's just, you know, he kicked out the radiator. So it's just like everything's coming out of the radiator. I get out of the vehicle, okay? I'm not hurt. No injury. This is amazing, right? You know what? I'm in a state of shock. How many believe I'm in the state of shock? The guy behind me happens to be a, um, a park guy. Works for the park services. This was in the States. Now, he, he comes out, and he sees what's going on. He has a revolver. This is in the States, right? They have guns. He pulls out his revolver, okay? 
And in my mind, I'm going, I didn't mean to kill him. <laughs> I was thinking the guy's going to shoot me. <laughs> so I'm about to say, I didn't mean it. <laughs> That's how my mind was working. Why? Because I'm in shock. Okay, are you getting a picture? Mary is not registering what is going on. It's not connecting in her mind because she's grieving. She's in shock. He's talking to her. He's walking there. He's alive, but she's not getting it. Until now. There's a moment. Look what happens in the very next verse. And then Jesus said to her, Mary, I want you to know that when God speaks to us by name, Something happens in our lives. You know, she had been looking for a dead body. Here's a risen, risen Savior. She wasn't, that was not on her grid. That wasn't computing for her, you know. She was, you know, looking at an empty tomb and thinking his body was gone. Yes, it was gone. He's standing there. He's alive. Uh, can you imagine the music to her ears when she says his name? And you know, when God actually calls our name, it's a call to worship him. It's a call to trust him. It's a call meant to evaporate our fears, our doubts, our disappointments. It's, it changes our lives. You know, when we hear that inner call that, that you know, someone would even call the effectual call of God, the, the thing where God is speaking and revealing himself to us, everything is changed at that moment. All of the false assumptions disappear. You know, when God calls our name, when we are experiencing sorrow and blinded to truth, when God calls our name, even though we're groping our way through grief and losses so real that it has numbed us to the pleasures of life, when God calls our name, he actually leads us out of blindness and begins to reveal to us his identity. At the sound of her name, Jesus knew it's Jesus. What a great thing. The one she had been searching for. You know, could you imagine that split second? She went from absolute despair and sorrow to absolute joy in a split second. You know, that would have been such an amazing moment. Wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall? Wouldn't it have been a great to witness that scene? Could you imagine the, the emotion that went inside of her to, to, to go from where she was at to all of a sudden realizing Jesus is alive? That was an incredible moment. You know, what is Jesus to us? You know, what is Jesus to you? Have you discovered him? If not, you're groping through life blinded to an amazing reality. You're blinded to the truth that God is alive. You know, just because you and I may not believe, if that's the case, that God is real, he still is. You know, I was there. I still remember as a child, my grandmother was a very godly woman. She was praying. I said, Grandma, how do you know God's alive? She goes, Paul, I just have faith in him. I know he's real. I know he answers prayer. I mean, it was really, you know, I, I lived quite a bit of my early life not having any sense of, you know, God was there. You know, struggling, very self-focused, struggling through problems, wondering, you know, does anybody care? You know, and as a child, you know, how many people go, you know, your parents are there and they really care for you. But if you grow up in an alcoholic home, when you grow up in dysfunction, when you grow up with people groping and dealing with their own issues so they don't have enough emotional energy or wisdom or understanding to really focus in on you, let me tell you, you feel alone. I felt that. But there came a day when Jesus called my name. Now, I didn't hear it audibly. 
I didn't even hear my name internally. You know what, I, you know what happened? God began to hedge me in. Everywhere I turned, I kept running into things of God. God was around me, all around me. He was just breaking into my life in so many different ways. You know, people were speaking to me. The gospel was being preached to me. You know, God was coming at my life in all these different directions. You know, that's how God calls us. He, he breaks into our lives until finally we come to the deep awareness. You know, God is alive. He's real. And he's speaking and he's drawing and he's calling us to himself. What a powerful thing that is. But not only did Jesus appear to Mary, but he came also to the 10 disciples. Now, Judas, remember he had betrayed Jesus. He had hung himself. And for some reason, Thomas was missing. Maybe he went and get some groceries. Well, think about it. Somebody's got to take care of the responsibility, making sure they're eating right there in the upper room. So he's not there for whatever reason. And the other 10 happened to be there. And here we see in verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, now, You can imagine in the morning, they had these women coming. They were hysterical. You know, the body's gone. Then they come back and says, hey, Mary came back. I've seen Jesus, you know. How many know that there's conflicted emotions? They just thought, poor women, they're just so distraught. You know, not only is the body gone. Well, they went to check that one out. But now they're telling us he's alive? I can just imagine these guys. They're just like in a quandary. What in the world is going on? And it says here, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be to you. Now, he didn't use the door. He just kind of came into their midst. That tells me something about our new bodies that we're going to have. Oh, by the way, you know, we, as Christians, a lot of times we talk about heaven. Let me give you the, give me the shortened version. When we die, if before Jesus comes back, what happens is we come to be in his presence. But you know what? When Jesus comes back again, our bodies, we're gonna get a new, new body. Hey, it's gonna really be a body that works. It'll never deteriorate, never grow old, never struck, struggle, no sickness, no sin, no emotional hangups, no issues. How many say, this sounds pretty good. I like the new body. Matter of fact, you can walk through walls. I really like this body. Jesus just shows up in their midst. And he says to them, he shows them his hands inside. I mean, it's me. And the Bible says they were so overjoyed when they saw him. And the Lord said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. You know that first greeting is the word shalom in Hebrew. And and if you go to Israel, they say shalom. That means peace. You know, peace be with you. God's blessing be upon you. But that was the ordinary greeting. But the second expression is the communication of the peace that Christ's sacrificial death brings to a pardoned sinner. In other words, he's giving us peace. When we have a right relationship with God, we have peace with God. When you have peace with God, you have peace within your own soul. Then you can begin to have healthy relationships with other people. Being at peace with yourself is a really powerful thing, folks. And how do you get peace with yourself when you have peace with the Father? And then you can begin to have beautiful relationships with other people. It's out of this new relationship with God that the disciples are sent out with this wonderful ministry of what? Reconciliation. That we can help people become reconciled to God and with others. So what locked doors does Jesus have to penetrate in your life? What fears keep you hiding and afraid of what others think? Oh, to have Jesus come and bring peace into our troubled hearts. To give us a release for helping us to become all that God intends for us to become. And it only happens when we're reconciled to God. Finally, Jesus appears to Thomas. And I can just imagine Thomas showing back up. 
These guys are babbling and so excited. Thomas, you won't believe what happened. Jesus showed up. Thomas is going, you've got the same disease the women got? What happened with you guys? I mean, he had a problem. Did he not? Of course he did. And you know you say, well, I wouldn't be like Thomas. No, I think I would. I think I'd have a little problem. You know, Thomas, you know, I love Thomas. And you know, before you put him down, because you know, a lot of times as Christians, we go, oh, doubting Thomas, you know. Just remember back before they went down to Judea with Jesus to resurrect Lazarus. It was Thomas that said, hey, if Jesus is going back down to Judea, excuse me, we know that that could be a life-threatening situation. Hey, let's go with him. Let's be prepared to die for him. So Thomas was a very courageous man. I think we've got to be careful how we frame people. You know, one incident in their life does not define the person. You know, you and I had the same, you know, Thomas is going to go on. Man, I'm having a hard time believing Jesus is alive. You know, Thomas says to these guys, look. He says in verse uh, 20, uh, okay. Thomas says this in verse 24. Now, Thomas called Dithmas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, guys, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I'm just not going to believe it. I just don't buy it. I think you guys are getting whatever Kool-Aid the ladies were drinking this morning. Man, you guys are really out there, you know? And uh, anyways, I could, I could just preach about the value of being in a service because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, he missed church that one Sunday, and look what happened. He missed Jesus. I mean, whoa, you know, Right? That could happen. <laughs> I did for Thomas. <laughs> I just threw that one in. Verse 27. So Jesus shows up like he did that first time. A week later, verse 26, his disciples are in the house again, and Thomas is now with them. Some, he's, no, he's not going grocery shopping this week. He's going to make sure he's going to be there, right? And the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, hey, hi, guys, shalom, you know? And, and, and he says to Thomas, this is so embarrassing, you know, because we read the story. John tells us, Thomas, he says, hey, come over here, Thomas. I want you to put your finger here. See my hands? Reach there and touch them. Isn't that amazing? You know, put your hand, it says, into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, Thomas fell down. He started worshiping him. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen, you believe. But he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Isn't that powerful? Yeah. You know, when Jesus calls us by name, it's definitely a challenge to stop doubting and start believing. Are we to believe only what we see? Listen to Jesus' promise. You and I, if we believe. Here, here's, here's what I love about Christianity. Non-Christians say, I'll only believe if I see it. The Bible says, if you believe it, you will see it. It's the exact opposite. It's a dichotomy in our thinking. It just creates a problem for us. Um, the time would come that neither sight nor touch would be possible for Jesus would have returned to his father. Beyond the range of physical senses. And yet, he will still be visible through the eye of faith. What's the point John is trying to drive home? It's interesting as we keep reading down in verse 29, Jesus said, you know, I've read it, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then it says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of why he wrote the gospel. Some of you today may not have this life that John's talking about. Well, what life is he talking about anyways? Well, in, in uh, John uh, 17, verse 3, this is Christ's high priestly prayer. He says this, Now this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know, here's the deal. If we know Jesus, what kind of a life do we have? We have an awesome life. We have eternal life. We have forever life. We have a hope that transcends beyond this life. Isn't that great? You know, we're not just living for this life. As a matter of fact, when you have this life within you, it changes how you live this life. It literally gives you meaning and value and purpose and significance. It's so amazing. So how do you respond to the resurrection of Christ? Do you deny it? You don't think about it? The religious leaders of Christ, they lied about it. They fabricated another story that could not be substantiated. You know, why, why did they do that? Because they did not want to submit to the authority of Christ. You know one of the reasons why I think people have a hard time believing? Because they don't want to live an accountable life. They just want to do their own thing. That's one of the number one reasons. It's not because, you know, they've searched this stuff out, they've really evaluated this thing. No, I don't think that's the problem. I think it's because we want to do our own thing. That's one of the number one reasons. Yet when the significance of this event is understood, and when we embrace it, it changes us. It transforms us. It helps us deal with our own mortality. We know that life now doesn't just come to an end, and that's the end of it. But rather, we know we're going to come into God's very presence. And we're going to be changed and become like him. The message of Christ's resurrection is paramount to, the, to our story of being raised from the dead. You can't believe in a heaven unless you have a means to get there. You have to have a reason why you're going to be in heaven. You know, some people say, well, I just live a good life. What's that got to do with anything? You know, we're not getting to heaven because we're good. We're getting to heaven because of what Jesus Christ accomplished. And that we've put our faith in him. That's the reason why we're getting to heaven. To, live, to decide to live independently of God is the great sin of humanity. And it's done to our own demise and destruction. For the Christian, Christ's resurrection is a signal that he conquered our ultimate enemy, death itself. For the believer to die is just a change of residence from earth to heaven. From seeing darkly to seeing clearly. From spiritual conflict to a place of ultimate peace and rest. From hope to reality. Do you know what? Jesus is here tonight. And he's calling your name. One of two responses. We either respond in faith or we respond in doubt. So why don't we stand tonight as we close. You know, this morning as I was sharing this message, you know, in the, both the services, this place was just absolutely packed. It's amazing. And in both those services, people responded. They really did. It was great. And you know what? It doesn't matter how many people are here, how few people are here. That's, none of, that's got nothing to do with it. You're here. And you're here by God's appointment. And God's working at speaking your name. God is really trying to get your attention. You have a choice to make. 
And maybe you've never received Christ. Maybe, you know, this has never been that clear to you before. But tonight it's connecting with you. God is really making himself real to you. He's speaking into your innermost being. And he's telling you that, listen, I know where you're at. I know your situation. I know your fears. I know your doubts. I know your sorrows. I know your losses. And I care about you, just like I cared about Mary. You know, some people say, why did Jesus reveal himself to Mary? She, she was a person that had a very spotty past. You know, as a matter of fact, she, you know, the Bible tells us in Luke's gospel, when she first met Jesus, she was demonized. She had seven demons cast out of her. When Jesus first spoke her name, she was set free. And now when Jesus speaks her name in this story, she's released from her fears. Isn't that a powerful? I love it when Jesus speaks her name. When Jesus speaks into our situation, it is a very powerful thing. And just with every head bowed tonight, maybe you're here and you've never given your life to Christ. And if that's you tonight and you say, you know what, Pastor? This makes so much sense to me. It's resonating. I sense God has been speaking into my innermost being. What an amazing story. I believe that God many times tries to help us understand truth via the means of story. I love it when I watch a movie and it says, based on a true story. It really impacts me. Doesn't it impact you? It probably have a few details that are different in those stories than the reality, but you get the idea. It's based on a true story. I want you to know even the details are correct here. This is not only based on a true story. This is the story. This is the hope that we can put our faith in a God who is not just a trillion, billion miles distant. He's not just, you know, as theologians say, he's not just transcendent, but he's eminent. He came to our planet. You know, Sterling brought that out. He came to our planet, and he dwelt among us. And John said, we saw it for three and a half years. We can testify this was a unique person. This was unlike any other person they had ever met. You and I can meet that person tonight. His name is Jesus. And if that's your desire tonight, with every head bowed, just raise your hand and say, Pastor, I want to meet Jesus. I want to introduce you to him. It'll change your life. God bless you. Anybody else? I want to meet Jesus tonight. Okay, God bless you. Yeah. You know what we're going to do to help you tonight? We're all going to pray together. All of us. We're going to pray a prayer of introduction. We're going to ask Jesus to come into our life. That's an introduction. And then what I'm going to encourage you to do afterwards is go to the guest reception area and say, hey, you know what? I prayed the prayer. I got introduced to Jesus. I want to get to know him. And what we're going to do from that point, you know, it's up to you. I'm not putting pressure on you, but we want to help you develop in your relationship. That's why I teach a class on Wednesday nights for people who are new to the Christian faith to help you grow in this relationship with Jesus. That's at 7 o'clock. I encourage you to come to that. If you let us know who you are, we can actually design it in such a way that we can help a very mature Christian get to know who you are, and they will work with you at your speed, at your time, at your convenience, and come alongside of you and help you develop in your walk with God. That's very important to us. You know, so it's great we introduce you, but what good is that going to do is that's all you do is meet someone, but you never get to know them. No, it's, that's not what we desire. Yes, it starts with an introduction, but no, we want you to continue the journey and grow in your faith. So let's pray together tonight, all of us, out loud. Father in heaven, I confess before you that I've sinned against you. And I ask you to forgive me 
of all my sins. I acknowledge that you are the one who you say you are. You are a God in the flesh. And you died for my sin. And I receive you right now as my Lord and Savior. I thank you for coming into my life. Forgiving all my sins. And is now going to begin this journey with you. I thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.